couple of places that I would have you to turn to is Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, you can put a bulletin in there if you would. And then Matthew chapter 22. And then you can turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. And now you're probably saying, well, wait a minute, that's not 1 Corinthians, Pastor Don, and we are not out of first chapter yet. In fact, are we even off of verse 18 yet of the first chapter? And you would be uh, correct in saying that, but I have taken liberty this week, and I don't usually do this. I don't do this very often. I I will take a, a uh, uh, every once in a while, I'll take a, a, a little uh, trail off of maybe our uh, verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible um, when it's apropos for it if, it, if it's calls for it, if, it's call, if it calls for it. And right now I, I felt the need to uh, have a different message today. Um, it's a message that, that I think is near and dear to my heart, um, and hopefully it will mean something to you. Uh, I've seen so many men and women and kids come in and out of this church, and uh, we've been here since 1996, and that's a long time. And uh, to have a small church like this um, since 1996... Um, if everyone were still here, we'd be a large church. Um, but we've had a lot of people that have come and gone. And some are doing very, very well. I couldn't be more proud. Some others, though, have are, are suffering shipwreck. And, and it's something that grieves my heart when I see um, brothers and sisters and kids that are suffering shipwreck when this was their home as a church. And... It's something that I, I can't I can't fix it. I can't fix people. I can't fix them. It's something that the Lord has to do, and it's something that grieves my heart greatly. Um, and I don't know how to stem that tide. I don't know how to stop it. I can't stop it. It's it's not within me to be able to stop it. I can't stop anybody from leaving the building. I can't stop anybody from stopping, you know, from from attending Calvary Chapel Christian Fellowship. Um, nor would I ever. I, I am. You are not my sheep. You're God's sheep. Um, and and so it's in that that uh, it does grieve my heart when I see people leave, only to maybe sporadically go to another church for a season and then drop out altogether. And, and then you look at their lives down the road, just a, you know, a few months, a few years down the road, and you look at their lives and you go, wow, you've swum among the sh- the, amongst the rocks in the water and you're broken up. You, you're, you're, your ship is really, really, really beaten up and broken and you've taken on a lot of water. And, and it, it breaks my heart. And so... Uh, I have never really known how to address that issue. And I thought, well, here's a good time to address that issue. This is my last message of 2015 at Calvary Chapel Christian Fellowship. And so I thought, you know, why don't we do something a little bit different? Why don't we, why don't we look at our lives? We, maybe, maybe I can share something today that maybe can... can head somebody off in the past from making a a mistake. Not that you have to be in this church. 
please don't ever hear me say, you have to be in this church in order to be strong with the Lord. There's nothing, no, that's not true. Um, We have people that are in this church that are very, very strong. We have people in this church that are not too strong. And, and, you know, they they need to strengthen and and be stronger, you know. And and I I attempt to, on a week-by-week basis, give you everything that I can possibly give you. Um, To my own fault at times, because I'll take more time. (laughs) And, And I don't want to ever rip anybody off. Not that you pay to get in here or pay to get out. You know, it's one of those things that I want you, when you leave this place, to get everything that you came here for. I want you to, to at least have heard from the Lord. I want you to have heard from the Lord. Now, could it be done, you know, more succinctly? There's others that can do it very, very, very well. And uh, I'm one of those that I tend to take a little bit longer than, than others. And, and my son was talking about this the other day, talking about uh, when he was... Uh, talking to some kids I'd forgotten a class that he was in he said uh, I, I think the question was uh, how long's your service isn't that what I was how long is your service you know and and the other kids were going oh ours is like you know 30 minutes ours is oh 40 minutes and they looked at Nathan how long's yours and ours was an hour and a half and everybody went what wow you know wow really um, yeah it is you know I mean I preach, hopefully, like Paul. Paul preached all night. A guy fell asleep. You remember? Paul fell asleep. I mean, Paul didn't fall asleep. Paul's preaching. And, and a guy sitting up in a, in, a, in a second floor window sill, he falls asleep on Paul, and he falls out the window. And he breaks his neck, I think. I mean, he broke, he, he, he dies. And, and Paul's teaching, and somebody says, Hey, Paul, you know what? Uh, that fellow just fell out of the window. He's outside. He's dead, by the way. <sighs> Paul goes, All right, well, hang, hang on, everybody, with this message. I know I've been teaching for about six hours. <laughs> you know, and Hang on. And he goes outside, and he prays, and the Lord heals this guy. And he says, All right, you okay now? Yeah, I'm all right. Wow, thanks, Paul. No, thank the Lord. It's not me. It's in the Lord. It's, it's the Lord. It's not me. So why don't you come on up, get back in your seat. I got to finish. You know, and he goes back in. He doesn't say, hey, you know what? That's enough for tonight. You know, Paul went back in and he finished his message. I go, man, if there ever was a Calvary Chapel pastor, that's one of them right there. I love it. I love Paul and the way he teaches. And so sometimes I take a little bit extra time. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at our lives today. Back in 1955, my father, Denny Haskins, um, who I have been... I see him once a year about, and, and uh, he's still alive, uh, born in 1933. You know, he's 82 years old, um, still going strong. Um, my mom passed away in 2006. My dad's been remarried since. And, uh, but back in 1955, my dad opened a business called Redlands Aviation. Uh, that right there is where I grew up, right there. That's my... That's my family heritage right there. That building right there. I've spent hours upon hours upon hours, countless hours on that blacktop, uh, in the heat, in the rain, in the snow at times. There's actually been some snow there at times. Uh, it is a, a, it's my life right there. There's where my life was. I mean, from the time that I was born up until I was about 20 years old, I worked there and, and continued to work there. By the time I, my, I have two older brothers, Dave and Dan, one's five years older than I am, one's three years older than I am. I tried to find a picture of all 
you know, four of the boys standing in front of the building, and I just couldn't find one fast enough. But um, just to kind of go back and show, but but uh, from the time that we were old enough to hold a screwdriver, my dad had us working on planes. He'd started having us, you know. Now, I know that might scare you a little bit, you know. You guys are like seven years old and you're working on planes. Yeah, yeah, we were, you know. But, but see, on an airplane, there's, there's all over an airplane, there are, there's all these screws. There's screws holding the tail cone on. There's screws here, you know. There's screws here holding this thing that holds the tail on here. That screws that takes a plate off to where you can see the actual uh, structure that mounts to the actual airframe and what have you and, and all of the controls. There's screws underneath the wings. There's screws on top. There's screws all around this gas tank right here. You could pop out and pull a, 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 they call it a fuel bladder out, but there's screws all underneath the, the airplane where, that holds plates on to where you can go in and, and my dad would have us unscrew the plates uh, there's nothing structural about them whatsoever. They're simply inspection hole plates. And so we'd unscrew the holes and then we'd put all the screws in a little cup except for one screw and then we would turn the, the plate around and kind of tighten it back up so that my dad could go back in there and look up inside all of the inspection holes to make sure that the airplane was in airworthy condition. And so um, from the time that we could all hold screwdrivers in our hands, uh, that's what we did. Seven years old, I'm underneath an airplane. I fit under a plane at that time, you know. But uh, once you get to a point where you get a little bit older, you then are promoted to the wheel and tire man. You're promoted to the wheel and tire man. Now, the wheel and tire man is actually the lowest position in our business, and it was always kind of a running joke. You're the wheel and tire man, you know. And that was the guy who did exactly what it sounds like. He was the wheel and tire man. He had to be under the airplane amongst all the greasy belly and amongst the dirty tires and everything. And you'd have to get under there and you'd get all grubby and what have you. And and an airplane is so much different than a car. What I love about an airplane is that the engine, when you're working on an engine on an airplane, it's, it's up here. It's up here. So you pop the cowling off and you move it all. You take all of the the, uh, cowling off of the airplane. It comes completely off. All the skin of the airplane comes off. And so the engine is exposed and it's on a... It's right here. It's, it's in front of you. You don't have to bend over or anything. You don't have to get on the ground. You don't have to lean way over like in a car. And here's the cool thing about an airplane is that the engine is so high up, there's no tar that gets in there as opposed to your engine on your car. How many of you guys have ever worked on an engine on your car? And, and you reached in there and you touched something in there and you got a piece of black oil on you and the next thing you know, that oil is all over you. I mean, it's just all over your, your clothes. It's all over you. You're going, where did this stuff come? It just multiplies, you know? But on an airplane, everything's up in the air and so there's no dirt to it and so it's actually very, very clean in those engine compartments. And so this is what we did. I worked on airplanes my whole life. My dad, from 1955 until about five years ago, he had this he had this business. Now, we changed the name of the business. My, my dad split from his partner, who he opened the business with, Fred Davis, many, many years ago. He split, and Re- Fred stayed with Redlands Aviation. My dad split off, and he became Red Arrow. 
and uh, A-E-R-O. And so uh, we moved from this hangar up to another hangar. And then we ended up, Fred ended up going out of business and we ended up coming back and we kept our name Red Arrow. And so we went from Redlands Aviation to Red Arrow. And Red Arrow basically shut down about three, four, five years ago. Um, so from 1955 until just 2010, 2011, 2012, um, my dad had aircraft maintenance shop. And those are the size of airplanes that we would work on. You know, airplanes anywhere from two passenger up to 10, 12 passenger airplanes, but they're all propeller driven airplanes. And we would work in that hangar. Now that hangar right there is a Quonset hut. It's kind of a Quonset hut, what they call a Quonset hut. Round top building, it's 80 feet across, about 60 feet deep. And, and what we would do um, is we'd put the airplanes in there, we'd work in there, but the whole ramp out in front was all where we worked also. But, but here's the cool thing. My uncle, Roy, he was in the service. He was a lieutenant colonel in the service in the Air Force. And he and another fellow by the name of Altheos, they bought this airport many, many years ago. And they bought the airport. And my grandma and grandpa and my dad and all my aunts and uncles, they all moved from Oklahoma, Enid, Oklahoma, out to California. And this is where they lived. They lived in this building. So this was actually my grandfather's barn. Is that cool? This was his barn. And inside this barn, there were, and you can still see them to this day on the ground, you can see where they had the, the uh, uh, pen enclosures where they raised turkeys and, and chickens and so on and so forth, where they had, that, had the, uh, the pens in there. There's also some, drain, uh, some drains in the floor where they did their slaughtering. You know, where they, you know, slaughtered their chickens and pigs and, you know, turkeys and all that kind of stuff there. And the blood ran outside and what have you. Sorry if that grosses you out. But that was an active, active barn. Now, on the other end of this building, there's another building that looks just like this. So it looks basically the same. Well, on the other end of this building over here was another structure that looked like this. And that was their house. That was what they lived in. So they lived at a kitchen, a living room, bedrooms, you know, bathroom and so on and so forth in there. And this end of the, of the hangar was a restaurant. It was a restaurant. There used to be some stairs that climbed up to the top where they had like a top deck here where you could overlook. The runway is out here. And so, and then there's beautiful mountains out there and you can't see them in this picture, but there's beautiful mountains out there, huge mountains. And so you could sit out there and drink coffee and have a sandwich and what have you. And so this is my family. There were, three, there were three houses at the airport. Still, only three houses at the airport. My aunt lived in one. My grandma and grandpa lived in the other. And we had some friends, the Filkins, they lived in the third. So this is my family heritage right here. This is what I lived in. This is what I grew up in. It turned into a, into a hangar. And it still is to this day being used as a hangar working on airplanes like this. We sold it to one of the guys that worked for us for many, many years. His name is Casper Terry. Yes, his name is actually Casper. And yes, we always used to call him the other, you know, hey, ghost. Um, but, and he was friendly. Um, <laughs> but uh, this is where we do our work. You know, what does all this have to do with anything? Well, here's the thing. What we'd have to do in airplanes and cars are a little different. Airplanes and cars are a little different. Um, airplanes are not maintained like our cars today. I know that there's some of you that are very, very meticulous on your maintenance on your vehicles, but I also know if you're anything like me, you're not a meticulous maintenance freak when it comes to your vehicle. Um, if you were to, not to scare any of you, but 
If you go outside here today and you hear those little propeller airplanes going over the top of your head, not to frighten you or anything, but that airplane was probably built sometime between the 1940s and the 1980s. All right? They're old. They're very, very, very old. But let me also just reassure you, those airplanes are in better shape than probably the majority of our cars that we drove in here today with. Because there are such regulations from the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, that require you to do so much maintenance on an airplane. It depends on how the airplane's used. If it's a flight school airplane, we used to have an airplane that we would lease back to a flight school where students could go in or people could go in and, 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 and purchase some hours to fly our airplane. And they would give us some money and we, you know, and, and we were able to just make money on airplanes and what have you, you know, and have other people fly our airplanes. Well, being that it was a part of a flight school and what have you, there had to be inspections every 50 hours. It was a very minor inspection every 50 hours. And then every 100 hours, there's a major inspection. So every 100 hours that airplane is running, at the end of 100 hours or before it hits 100 hours, it has to have an annual inspection or a 100-hour inspection is what it's called. And there is, you have to pull all the plates on the airplane. You have to completely and totally, you know, open up the engine. You've got to completely open up all of the plates on the airplane and make sure that everything is in proper working condition where everything is airworthy on that airplane. Well, if it's just a private airplane and you just have your own airplane, you have to do that once a year. It's called an annual inspection, an annual inspection. And you couldn't do an annual inspection on your own. You can't go, well, I'm going to do my own because it's my airplane. Well, there are some people that will allow you to do that and inspectors that will come in and they'll say, hey, you know, give me, you know, five, six, eight hundred bucks. You can do your work. I'll go back and check it and, and, and uh, uh, you know, and then I'll sign off your logbook. You know, I'll do the legal, you know, signing of your logbook uh, after, you know, you do all this inspections and everything. But... I'll just sign it off. You give me 800 bucks. It's an easy 800 bucks to me as an inspector. And you, it doesn't cost you that much. Well, we, th those, are, those, are, those kind of pilots are under the classification bold pilots. Okay, we call those bold pilots. And, and there was always an old saying, there are old pilots and there are bold pilots, but there are no old bold pilots. Okay, <laughs> because if you're a bold pilot, you're going to die. You're going to crash. You're going to mess up because you cut corners, because you do things that are not right. Those who would bring their airplanes into a shop like ours, we were not cheap. We were very expensive, but we were very good. We were one of three. That, that shop right there was one of three uh, maintenance facilities in the United States that was insured, that, that the largest insurer of EMCO was what's his name of the insurance company, we were one of only three fixed base operators that EMCO would insure because they wouldn't insure mechanic shops because they were such high risk. There was only three that they insured, and ours is one of them, because we never had a claim against us. We were expensive, but we were thorough, and when you left with your airplane, we never had one airplane that ever went down because of mechanical failure. And since 1955 until, you know, four or five years ago, I'd say it's a pretty good record. 
And so here's the thing. It's because we did an annual inspection. We did inspections on airplanes and we would say the hard things when the hard things had to be said. I had a friend, I had a couple friends of mine that, that were poor guys. They were just young guys, a little younger than I was back in the day. And one was named Jeff and the other was named Wendell, Jeff Cathy and, uh, and Wendell Small. They bought a little uh, uh, single engine high wing airplane. And, and they bought it and they rebuilt the thing. They spent about a year and a half rebuilding this airplane. And then they brought it up to us. It was a Commonwealth is what it was called. And they brought it up to us and they parked it right about right where this Comanche, right where this airplane is right now, just a little bit further out here. And they asked my dad to go in and inspect it and, and go in because we had been working with those guys for years, you know. And so... They were mechanics, you know, but they weren't an inspector, and so they needed my dad's sign-off. And my dad said, Donnie, why don't you go out there, and that's what they used to call me out in California, Donnie. Donnie, why don't you go out and take a look at the Commonwealth, at Wendell and Jeff's Commonwealth, and, you know, and, you know, kind of get going on it, you know, for me. So I went out there. I walked out there. I literally walked out there this, like this, and I looked at the airplane, and I said, oh, my goodness, guys, you guys got a crack in your case you got a crack in your engine case. And they both looked at me like, you've got to be kidding me. We've just spent all of our life savings. We've just spent all of this money and all of this time. We're about to have this thing. Your dad signed something, put the cowl on it, and we're going to go start flying this thing. It's never flown since we bought it. You're telling me that the engine is bad? And I just walked up and I said, Guys, I hate to say this, but there's a... I really, really, really hate to say this, but there's a crack in your case. That was a hard thing to say to Jeff and Wendell. They were my friends. But I loved them more than hurting their feelings was going to be because they could get up in the air. They could get just off the end of the runway, just up in the air, and that engine case explode on them, let go. And there's no more propeller. There's no more engine. The engine just comes apart and they crash into the rocks and they die. And, and, and so here's the thing. You have to inspect. You have to inspect. And when you do inspect, you have to say the hard things. You have to go in and say, this is broken. You must fix it. And we were that kind of a shop. I'm sorry that this is going to cost you $4,000, or in that case, it's going to cost you about $12,000 to replace that engine. I'm sorry, Jeff and Wendell, but you know what? I'm not going to destroy, I'm not going to cash in my integrity because we're good friends. And we went out, we did, you know, we checked it, you know, we did some die checking and made sure that it was actually a crack, and sure enough, it was a crack, and I felt so bad for him. But we had customers that were angry with us. We would have customers that would, angry, would be angry with us because we would cost a lot. We had one customer that, that was angry with us. He was in a twin-engine airplane. It was a Cessna 310. Twin-engine airplane could seat six people. And he came up to our... He didn't bring his airplane up to our shop, but he was a guy that had been one of our customers for many years, but then he stopped coming to us because we were too expensive for him. And he came up to our shop and he said, Denny, he asked my dad... My airplane is running really, 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 really rough on my left engine. So, how much will you charge me to fix it? And my dad says, well, I won't use his last name, but his first name was Bob. He says, Bob, I, I don't know. 
you know, I, I don't know how much it's going to cost to fix. I have no idea what's making it run rough. And Bob goes, God, Denny, you guys are so expensive. Just give me a, a price of what it's going to cost. My dad says, Bob, I, I, I can't give you a price. Well, here's what it's doing. It's sputtering. It's making this. No- and my dad says, Bob, stop. Bring the airplane up. I'll take a look at it. I will charge you $45 an hour. That's what we charge. Back in that day, 45 bucks an hour. And you look at a car mechanic and you go, man, that's, not, that's, that's pretty cheap, you know, compared to what, you know. But back in that day, it was a lot of money back in that day. And, and Bob goes, forget it. No way. I can't, I, I don't want to have to spend two grand to try to get you to figure out what's wrong with this. My dad says, well, Bob, I don't know what to say, but bring it on up. I'll look at it if you want me to. And he goes, no, you're too expensive. So Bob ends up calling a couple buddies and said, hey, I'm going to make a day out of it. So on a Saturday, I'm going to have a couple of my buddies. They're going to come on out to the airport. They're going to come out and they're going to, uh, I'm going to take them to lunch, take them to breakfast over in Corona, which was about a, an airport about 20, 20 miles away from us, where they had a guy that was exactly one of those ink mechanics that would take your money and then sign his name to it. Had no integrity whatsoever, but he would sign his name to it. There are a lot of deaths that came through that guy. I don't even know how that guy continued to keep his license. But here's the thing. He says, I'm going to take it over to that guy over there in Corona. So he gets, the guys are coming out to the airport. One guy makes it to the airport, and the other guy doesn't make it. It's before cell phones, and so the guy couldn't call Bob and say, hey, man, I'm running late. Can you hold on for a second? But it was the greatest thing that ever happened to that guy because Bob put his buddy in the airplane. They got on the airplane, on the runway. They got out there and they started taking off. And as soon as they got off the end of the runway, that left engine just shut down on them. And their right engine turned them around and buried them into the ground and they went up in flames and they both died. Horrible deaths, horrible deaths. The guy was racing to the airport to get out there to be in that airplane. And he was stuck on the road where all of the, the emergency vehicles were right off the end of our runway in the backyard of someone's house out there in the middle of the orange groves out there. He got stuck in that traffic. And he told us later, he goes, I was supposed to be, I was late. I got stuck in the traffic of the airplane that I was supposed to be on. The guy was visibly, physically shaking while he was saying that to us. Here's the thing. And and the litigious society that we have, Bob's kids, they wanted to sue us. We're going to sue you for everything you got. Why? We didn't do anything. Well, you're a mechanic. I know, but we didn't do anything on the airplane. Well, it's your fault that my dad died. Sorry that your dad died. He was a good guy. I loved the guy very, very much, and we like you guys. I know I grew up with his boys and what have you, but they wanted to sue us. We never touched the airplane. And through our, you know, the legal documents or legal ramification, what have you, we said, you can't sue us because we never touched the airplane. We simply said, bring it up, we'll take a look at it. But your dad did not want that to happen. Didn't want that to happen. And it cost him his life. Why all these stories? Because airplanes have got to have a pretty educated eye to go on them to make sure that the airplanes will stay airborne. I would rather fly in an airplane that costs a lot of money for an inspection than no money for an inspection 
when I put my loved ones on the airplane because you're just asking to die. And I've, I've had to pick up many airplanes because of people exactly like that. I've been around a lot of death and a lot of airplane crashes, and it's just ugly. And 90% of the time, it's mechanic fault or, or, or uh, pilot fault. It's, it's somebody's fault. It's not because the airplane wouldn't fly. It's because somebody didn't do what it was that they were supposed to do. Pilot error. Mechanic error. We never had an airplane that went down because of a mechanical error. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that you protected us all those years. Here's the thing. An annual inspection. We have to do that on an airplane. You can't fly your airplane legally unless you have an annual inspection, and it's signed off in your logbook. Every airplane has two logbooks. One's an aircraft airframe logbook, and the other is an engine logbook, and every airplane, you have to have those logbooks with you so that if, it, if you land at an airport, FAA, a man can go out there and say, let me take a look at your logbooks. You have to produce, upon him producing his, you know, his uh, uh, credentials, you have to provide to him your logbooks to show that your airplane is in legal position to fly at that, on that day. And so you have to look at it. There has to go an annual inspection. And so all of this said, coming to this place, an annual inspection for us. Some of you go to the doctor for an annual inspection. Some of you go to the dentist you know, for an annual cleaning and inspection of your teeth. But what about a spiritual inspection? What about an annual spiritual inspection? I had you turn to, with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Look there if you would, if, if you want to. You don't have to, but the Bible says this. Examine yourselves or inspect yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. Surely you know that Jesus Christ is among you. If not, you have failed the test of genuine faith. And so Paul is sitting here and he's talking to the Corinthian church and he's saying, I want you to examine yourself. I want you to test yourself. I want you to give yourself an inspection. Are you really in the faith? Or are you not in the faith and you just think you are? And, and so when we look at that and we consider what is being in the faith, are you in the faith? Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you have a relationship with God through what he provided for you to have a relationship with him? And that is in his son, Jesus Christ. You cannot have a relationship with, with God apart from Jesus Christ. It just isn't going to happen. You're not a, not a, not a, a, a relationship that is going to provide salvation to you for there is only one man. One mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There's only one way to, to God. And Jesus said it in John chapter 14, verse 6, didn't he? What did Jesus say? You guys know this verse. You guys are students of the word. You know this word. What does it say? The word says this. I am the way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. Nobody's going to go to God, is going to go to heaven apart from Christ. Christ is the only ticket to go to heaven. He's the only way to heaven. Jesus claimed that he was the only way. There's no, he's not just one of many ways. He is the only way to go to heaven. Now, that's neat, and that's great, and that's wonderful. Excellent news. But then Paul says, examine yourself to see if your faith is genuine. 
Is your faith genuine? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, he says, many are going to come to me in that day and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't I cast out demons in your name? In your name? Didn't I do a lot of things in your name? He'll say it right, he says it right here. He says in Matthew chapter 7 and in verse uh, 21, not everyone who says to me, these are Jesus' words, these aren't Don's words, these aren't Paul's words, these aren't Matthew's words or Levi's words, these are the actual words of Jesus. And he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And then Jesus ups the ante here and he says, So, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who, who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. Now, everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them. So here he's saying, he's making a contrast. Those who are going to hear these words and do them, those are going to hear these words and not do them. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying, inspect yourself. Inspect yourself. Are you doing these things or are you not doing these things? If you're not doing these things, it frightens me for you and for your soul. Now, everyone who hears these sayings of mine, Jesus says, and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. You're going to be standing before me and you're going to say, Lord, Lord. And I'm going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. But I went to church. Depart from me, I never knew you. But I did these other things in your name. Depart from me, I never knew you. There was a difference between doing things. There was a difference between, you know, just saying the name. I'm afraid that there's a lot of people that have this false sense of security that they are saved when in all actuality they're not because they've said a simple prayer as a life, as a form of a life insurance policy. As some sort of a life insurance policy that says, well, here's the thing. I said a prayer at a crusade or I said a prayer in a church like Pastor Don's. I said a prayer at a Billy Graham crusade or a Harvest crusade or something like that. I said a prayer and so therefore I'm saved for eternity. I'm saved for eternity. Now, I don't want to throw doubt or fear in anyone's heart or their mind. But listen, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, just because you said some simple words doesn't mean that you have a relationship with God. If your life doesn't represent the, the words that came out of your mouth, then I seriously, I seriously, I seriously question your salvation. There are those that ask this question. They say, hey, listen, I'm saved. I said the prayer. And so therefore I'm saved. And so I can do whatever I want. I can live however I want. Here, let me read this to you real quick. Galatians chapter 5. Some of you guys know exactly what I'm going to say. Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to start with the positive. Paul talking to the church in Galatia. He says, I say then in verse 16 of chapter 5 of Galatians, I say then walk in the spirit 
and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. But here's the thing, verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, sexually immoral or, or, or licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery. Sorcery is where we get our word, far, is in the Greek, is pharmakeia. It's where we get our word drugs from. You're a drug user. Hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murderers, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. He doesn't just exhaust everything. He says, and the like. These are the works of the flesh. Of which, Paul says, I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so here's the thing. You got a quandary, you got a problem, you got an issue. If your life is is characterized by the works of the flesh, if that's who you are, if that's what you're known by, if that's what your character is, if that's what you're drawn to and do, and you you indulge in these things, you practice these things. Doesn't mean that you've done one of these things in a sin. You've slipped. You've asked for repentance. You've you've asked the Lord to put you back on the right path. You ask the Lord, Lord, I don't want to continue down this road. I messed up. God, forgive me. No, but that doesn't even come to your mind. What comes to your mind is, when can I go next? Or, or if you think, hey, it's the quick prayer that I'm going to give because now God is going to forgive me because he says, Peter, you got to do it you know, 70 times seven. And so here's the thing. I'm going to do these things and then I'm going to, I'm going to pray and I'm going to say, uh, Lord, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, but I'm going to go back out and do it again. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a, 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 a group of, of uh, the church, what calls themselves the church, that's, that, that actually has this mentality that says, if you confess on this day, you can go and raise hell all the rest of the days of the week. You can do whatever you want as long as you go in for confession. And I say that that's not what Paul is getting at here whatsoever what paul's saying if this is you and this is you practicing it you're not going to heaven how dare you how dare you say such a thing because the pastor who gave the message and gave the altar call at the end of the message and i said that prayer even though nothing changed in my life even though nothing else changed in my life i'm still sleeping with women i'm still doing as many drugs as i want i'm still indulging in any form of flesh that I desire to indulge in, but I just say every once in a while, I, you know, just for good kicks, you know, just for safety, I say, hey, Lord, forgive me of all those things on my way, you know, to go get blasted again. And that's you. Don't be surprised when you stand before the Lord and, he, and you go, oh, Lord, Lord. And he goes, depart from me, I never knew you. Wait, wait, wait. Didn't I... Didn't I do the didn't I prophesy in your name? I told people about you. Depart from me, I never knew you. But I cast out demons in your name. I did these other things. I did these things in your name. Why am I being cast out? Because you never had a relationship with me. I never knew you. 
You said a simple prayer and you lived your life for you. You never lived your life for me. You never gave your life to me. You, you said you gave your life to me, but you never did. We know that kind of a friend. We know that kind of a relationship. We understand that. Somebody who will come to you and ask for forgiveness when you know in all actuality, they don't ask, they're not meaning it. Your heart isn't behind this. We've all had people like that that have come to us. Maybe you're in a relationship that, that you know, your boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse sits there and says, I love you. But you know behind those eyes, you don't. You don't. They're empty words. You simply don't want to go through the hassle that a split up is going to, that a split up is going to cause. But you don't mean what you say. And, and, and here's the thing. I believe that there's a lot of people that are in this camp. And, and so there are those that will, will I've approached them, I've, I've been approached by many people that have gone down this road and say, yeah, I do this, 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 and this. And I do all these things. I shared a few weeks ago, I had a guy in our church that said, yeah, I'm sleeping with the two girls that I'm living with. Who cares? I think God's cool with it. You didn't find the loophole, man. There was no loophole for you there. You're in sin, man. And as long as you feel like this is some your liberty and God's good with you doing this, I, I, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. You can't keep going down this road. You can't keep going down this road. If you're not willing to repent of the, of the flesh that's in your life and you're boasting that you're sleeping with two women that aren't your wife, and you think that it's good and God's cool with it, and you think that God's already, you've got a misrepresentation of what the Word of God says. What authority do you have that says that I'm not going to go to heaven? I don't know. I'm looking here in the Bible. It says the works of your flesh are evident. It's adultery and fornication of which I've told you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, whether or not you've said a prayer or not, this should strike a little bit of fear into you if this is what you practice on a day-by-day basis. Wouldn't you think? If this is what your life is characterized by, how do you find yourself comfortable living in that life when the word of God says those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, lest you think I'm coming down hardcore law on you, know this. There is much room for grace. But only you and the Lord know if you're genuine between you and him. And here's the thing that breaks my heart. There's a lot of people that have come in and out of this church that stop inspecting their life. They stop doing the inspection. They stopped examining themselves. They stopped doing it. I had you turn to Matthew chapter 22. I've got to hurry up and get there. But in Matthew chapter 22, it says this. Beginning in verse 37, Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Of these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. here's Here's a quick little test. Do you love the Lord with all your soul, your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, everything? Do you, do you really love the Lord that way? And and I, I I'm going to be very confident in saying that the vast majority of you in this room, the vast majority of us in this room, not you, us in this room, have a hard time going, yes, 
with everything that I have, I totally love the Lord. Because you know yourself. You know the deep recesses of your heart. You know the deep recesses of your mind. You know what goes on. You know the sin that happens in your mind. You know the sin that you struggle with in life. You know that there's sin that is ingrained in your life and you you don't want it. You don't want it. You don't want to continue down those roads, but you find yourself falling in those things a lot and you don't want to continue to fall in those roads and you, you get discouraged. You can liken yourself unto Paul. He says, oh, the things that I will to do, those are the very things that I don't do. The very things that I will not to do, those are the very things that I practice, he says in Romans chapter 7. We Remember when we went through that in Romans? Paul had this incredible inner anguish, this in, internal battle warfare going on where he was trying to, to, to uh, uh, reconcile the flesh with the spirit. He's going, man, my spirit wants to do the right things, but my flesh is horrible. My flesh is bad. <laughs> I know that in me, that is in my flesh, that nothing good dwells, he says. He actually had to make that clarifier there that nothing in me is good. He says, no, 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 wait a minute. Let me, lest you mistake what it is that I'm saying. I am convinced that nothing in me that is in my flesh that no good dwells. He, he, he understands that Christ is in him and he is good. The Holy Spirit has come and take residence in him. It's in his flesh, he says, that's the evil part of me. That's the evil part. And so my life is a daily struggle because on a daily struggle that I have, it's the things that I will to do, I want to do for the Lord, and then I, I find myself not doing them. And the things that I know, I have no business going down that road. Those are the very things that I find myself practicing at times. And you can see this, this inner agony, this inner war that Paul says as he pens it out in Romans chapter 7. He goes, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And so he's got this inner turmoil that's going on. The battle between the flesh and the spirit. If you're a Christian, you know that battle. But here's the thing. Paul says, the battle's won through Christ. There's now therefore no condemnation, he says. He follows all of that up with verse 1 of chapter 8. He says, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I have a relationship, Paul's saying, with Christ Jesus. And so my flesh is it acts out. It's my flesh. Now there are those that have tried to take Paul's words and say, well, in that case, then you can do anything you want in your flesh. But your spirit remains pure. So go ahead and indulge the flesh Because your spirit is secure in the Lord. And, and that's not anything what Paul is saying. That is, just, that, that is contrary to everything else that Paul says all through Scripture. You see, what Paul's saying, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It's for those that are in Christ Jesus. You, you, you have given your life to Him. There really truly is an agony. There really truly is a battle in your heart. There is a battle in your life when you go down wrong roads. You go, man, I shouldn't have gone down that road. Lord, forgive me. God, give me strength. If on the other hand, you're going, I'm going down these bad roads. I don't care that I'm going down these roads. I don't care. I don't care who it affects. I don't care really much of anything. 
Everybody else is doing it, so I must be cool with it too. Here's the thing. I I question your salvation. I question whether or not you've really truly surrendered your life to Christ. Now, we all will sin. We will all sin. But we have an advocate. We have Christ that we can run to in those times where we sin. He, He steps in the gap for us. He removes he removes us from those situations. He gives us a way of escape in those situations. He, he forgives us in those situations. But we don't trample on grace. I remember hearing it said a long time ago from my pastor over in Fort Lauderdale. He says, grace is for falling. Grace is not for jumping. Grace isn't simply to jump into sin because you know that God's going to be there to protect you. There's a skewed mind. And I think a satanic mind that thinks that I can just do whatever sin I want because God's forgiven me. I can do whatever I want with no repercussions, with no feelings of of remorse, no feelings of, of needing to repent of those things, no feelings of breaking God's heart when I go down that road. Now, on this airplane right here, this is one of my favorite airplanes. This right here is a Comanche 260C, a C model. It's a great airplane. Love it. It's about a 1971-1972 model. Here's the thing. I love this airplane. This airplane is a beautiful airplane to me. To you guys, it's just an airplane. To me, it's a thing of beauty. To my dad also. My dad loves this airplane. My dad is a master on this airplane. He is probably the foremost mind on this model of an airplane, a Comanche in all of the world, in all of the world. And I I don't say that lightly. He has calls coming from Australia, from England, from Canada. He has people sending him and calling him constantly. Piper, the manufacturer, calls my dad to find out how to work on this plane. My dad is a master. He's an expert. He taught me everything that I know about it, but he's kept some things to himself just so he could say, I'm better than you. So, but here's the thing. On this airplane, you see, you can see the, the shine on the, on the skin here. I could take a little ball-peen hammer out there, and I can bink, 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 and I can go all over that airplane, and I can make little divots, that whole airplane. My dad would come out, and he'd see that. Would he be mad? He'd be mad. Would he disown me he might feel like it but he wouldn't disown me he'd ask me what did you do that for um, well because I knew you'd love me anyways I'm testing your love for me yeah that's you could have just asked me I love you you didn't have to prove it this way that I didn't fly off the handle and it's going to cost me probably sixty to eighty thousand dollars to fix your mess up. But I'll do it because I love you. But here's the thing, why did you do that? Now I could do that and my dad would still love me. But why would I ever want to do that to my dad? I love my dad. Just because I could do it, just because he would forgive me? Why would I ever go about doing something that would hurt my dad's heart just because I knew he was going to forgive me? You see where I'm going with this? Why would we just go ahead and sin because we know that God's going to forgive us if we really truly love the Lord? There should be a battle that's going on inside. Now, if I accidentally drop something on this wing and I dent it, 
my heart breaks and I go to my dad and go, Dad, I really messed up. I messed up really bad. What'd you do? I dropped something. My dad has been an awesome example to me in many ways of the Lord. I've crashed two of his vehicles. And not once has he ever gotten mad at me for crashing his vehicles because I didn't purposefully go out to crash his vehicles. I crashed my vehicle one time into a fence and I was high-ended about 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. And just so happened to be it was around a factory and I went into the factory and asked if somebody could come out with a forklift and pick my car up, you know. And he picked my car up off this thing and put it back out on the road and I took off and went home, but the car was messed up. fence was out, you know, I blew it. It was my fault. It was rainy. I was going too fast. I went around a corner. I was upset. Went around a corner. I spun out and went into the fence. Got high-ended in his El Camino. And the next day, I knew that he was going to go out and find it. When he woke up the next day, I said, Dad, I, I, uh, I hate to say this. I got in an accident last night in your car. His first words to me were, Are you okay? you okay my dad was interested in me not the car he's interested in me and not the car he cared more about me than the car i can get a new car those of you who've had you know loved ones in an accident your first thing isn't what did you do to the vehicle you know listen if it is you got some problems your first reaction should and ought to be are you okay are you okay that's relationship. Just because I can wreck my dad's car, just because I can do these things to my dad and he would still love me, doesn't give me the license to do it. It means that I'm going to try to stay away from that. I want to do things that are going to break my dad's heart. And when I do, I run to him and say, man, I blew it. I did this. I messed up. I wrecked your car. I accidentally dropped something on the wing. And there's consequences for it. But the love hasn't been broken. I didn't do it because I could. I did it because it was an accident. I did it because it wasn't a practice. I did it because it was a slip. That's how our relationship should be with the Lord. We're going to sin. We're going to blow it. We're going to fall. Grace is for falling. It's not for jumping. It's not, I'm going to sin because God's going to forgive me anyways. That's not a relationship. And I, I really, really question whether or not you have a relationship with God if that's the case. So examine yourself. See if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. Surely you know that Jesus Christ is among you. If you're not, if he's not, you have failed the test of genuine faith, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, 5. Check up on yourselves. Examine yourselves. I don't want to be here in another five years and see more of you gone and I find you out and I meet up with you somewhere out in the middle of the city and I find that your life is a mess. I'm not saying do it for me. Do it for you. Do it for the Lord. I, I'm tired of, 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 of casualties, spiritual casualties. The enemy is strong out there, gang. The enemy is strong out there. But you have a stronger God on your side. You have a stronger Holy Spirit in you. Jesus says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The devil can't make you sin. 
It's your flesh. It's you. It's when you're overcome with your desires and your temptations. That's where you have to run to the Lord. Ask the Lord, God, protect me in this time. God, protect me in this time. You want to break that sin? Ask him to protect you before you enter into that sin. You struggle with sin? This gave me, Listen, this is something that was given to me many, many years ago because of some situation that I was struggling in and sin in my own mind. And a pastor friend of mine came to me, and I've shared it with a lot of you, so this isn't going to come new to you, a lot of you guys. He shared with me, his name is John Corson. He said, listen, brother, that's how he talks. Listen, brother, I struggle with things also. So here's, I'm going to tell you what I do. I go to the Lord. And as a Christian, so many times what we do is that we throw up a shield of faith and we hide behind the shield. We go, Lord, please protect me from what I'm enduring right now. He goes, but oftentimes our sword remains sheathed. Unsheath the sword, brother. By all means, ask the Lord to protect you in that time, but then unwield the sword. In those areas of weakness, in those areas of sin in your life, he says, unsheath the sword and bring it out and start swinging it and use it. So many times we as Christians, we live in the defensive instead of living on the offensive while maintaining a defensive position. We're in a battle, man, a spiritual battle on a day-by-day basis. And he shared with me, he said, here's the thing I do, Don. I pray for 10 individuals. It's not a formula. I'm not trying to pass on to you a formula because God is much bigger than a formula. Saying, I'm telling you what I do for myself. I pray for 10 individuals, specifically by name. I don't just say I pray for, and lay, lay out 10 names. He says, I pray individually. Lord, right now, protect me from this thing. I don't want to fall in this. I don't want to I don't want to I don't want to injure your heart, Lord. I don't want to I don't want to break our relationship. I don't want to I don't want to presume upon your forgiveness because I'm about to get into something that I ought not be getting into. And so, Lord, protect me from that. Give me the strength to withstand that. And while you're at it now, Lord, I'm going to pray for Kevin. I'm going to pray for Pastor Kevin. I'm going to pray right now. He's at work. I don't know what he's going through, but Lord, the battle that's going on in his life right now, right now I'm interceding on his behalf. Lord, I'm coming to you and I'm asking you, God, to send your angels. I'm asking you to send your Holy Spirit to protect him and his mind. Protect him and give him strength. Help him to withstand the wiles of the enemy today. Help him to ward off the darts of the enemy. Help him to stand strong in you today, Lord. Help him to have victory. When he goes home, he can look at his wife in the eyes and say, I did it. Today I won. Lord, today I pray for Kevin. And after that, I pray for Brett. And then I pray for Brett. And then I pray for Andy. And then I pray for Rick. And then I pray. And, and, and I pray 10 individuals. John says, I pray for 10 individuals and I pray for him specifically. Sometimes I might pray for them and things that I know that they might be struggling in. Sometimes I don't even know what they're struggling in. I'm just praying for them. But can I just tell you, brother, what happens in a time like that? Number one, the Lord protects me because he gives me the strength to withstand the fiery darts of the evil one. But then I wield the sword and I begin to tear down strongholds that has taken the enemy years and years and years to build up in in your brother's lives, in my brother's lives. 
I'm interceding on their behalf and I'm praying for them. And so is the enemy. And I do that every time. It might be every five minutes. It might be every hour. It might be every day. I don't know when it is. Sometimes I'm attacked more. Sometimes I'm attacked less. But here's the thing. I do it specifically every single time that I'm cognizant of an attack that's coming my way. And I'm going to tell you what happens to me. The enemy, he comes and he attacks me. And God gives me the strength to withstand the attack. But then what happens is that as he throws a fiery dart at me, what I'm doing is I'm throwing off 10 nuclear bombs in hell. And I'm exploding years and years of demonic work that he has taken in the lives of these brothers that I'm praying for. And so he hits me with one little fiery dart and I go and lob 10 more missiles back at him that are far more damaging than he could ever damage me. And every time he attacks me, I attack him 10 times stronger. I'm not saying that this is a formula for everyone. I'm not saying it's a formula. Here's the thing. The point is, let's start wielding the sword. Let's start lifting each other up so that we can find ourselves victorious, so that we don't see more casualties walking out of the building only to see them a year down the road or two years down the road living in a lifestyle that you didn't want them to live in, living in a, you know, a drug stupor, to, 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 to be living with somebody that's not their spouse completely and totally presuming upon the grace of the Lord. Let's lift each other up. That's what a real family does. That's what a spiritual family does. That's koine fellowship, man. That's where we come in together and we lift each other up. We treat each other closer than a family. And we come in and we, we're, we're, we don't see each other for a while. Let's ask, hey man, I haven't seen you for a few weeks. Where have you been? Where have you been? This is our family, guys. And it's small today. But it just has to start with one of us. It just has to start with two of us. But here's the thing, man. I don't want to see a spiritual casualty. I don't want to see any more spiritual casualties. Not on my watch. We're the watchmen on the walls right now, man. We have got to stand in the gap for brothers and sisters that are suffering shipwreck. I don't want you to be the next shipwreck coming out of this church. I can do so much, but I'm calling on you. I'm begging you. I'm pleading with you. Inspect your own life. Examine yourself to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. Surely you know that Jesus Christ is among you. If not, I'm sorry to say you've passed the test of genuine faith. You failed to pass the test of genuine faith. So what do we do? Do we stay depressed? No. We run to the Lord, right? We run to the Lord. We ask for forgiveness and the Lord lifts us up and he places us back on the path, on his path. The whole story of the prodigal son. Maybe you're a prodigal son, prodigal daughter here right now and you've walked and wandered away from the Lord for a long time and you're sitting here going, man, it's a long ways back to the Lord. Can I tell you this? Here's how long of a walk it is back to the Lord. You're walking this way away from the Lord can I just tell you that if you just do this and turn back around to the Lord and turn 180 degrees, what you're going to see is the Lord's vapor on your neck because he's very close. He's waiting for you to turn around. Do you understand that the only time in all of Scripture that you ever see a representation of God running, it's the Father running to his Son because his Son turned and repented. He was coming home. It's the only time in all of Scripture you ever see God run. It's when one of his kids turned back around towards him. He ran 
The father ran to the son. The father would run to the daughter. The father will run to you. You just need to turn around. It's not a long ways back. It's simply a surrender. Paul said it best. He says, I've been crucified. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Life is not about you anymore. It's about Christ. No more spiritual casualties. Amen? Let's inspect ourselves. Amen? Father, thank you so much. This year ahead of us right now is going to be a tough one, I know. But Lord, spiritually, help us to be victorious. Help us to lift up those, those weak hands that are around us, maybe. Maybe we see some brothers or sisters that are struggling in their own faith. Lord, help us. Give us wisdom. Give us insight. When that happens, and then give us the boldness to come alongside and help to hold them up and to sustain them in, in their times of weakness. Lord, if today there's anybody in this room that's weak and they're broken down and they're just wondering, man, can it all be true? I mean, could I really simply just turn back around and the Lord would reset me back on the path? Well, I, I, I just lift them to you, Lord, right now. I, I pray that they just test it. <laughs> they just come before you and they repent. They'll find out themselves that you're right there. You're there to forgive. You're there to restore. You're there to renew. God, help us to live for you. Help us to have true relationship with you, not one of just words, but one of action, one of heart, one of mind, with our body, soul, and spirit. Help us to love you, God, in ways that we don't even know how to love you right now. God, show us and help us to live for you. The days are short, Lord. The days are evil, and it's getting more evil on a day-by-day basis. There are so many temptations out there in the world that we can fall into. Lord, if there are specific sins in this room right now where my brothers and sisters are falling into, right now in this quietness, this quiet moment, not asking for anybody to lift up their voice and share what that sin is. I'm asking my brothers and sisters right now to commit it to you. The quietness of their heart and the quietness of their mind. Lord, by them speaking to you, they you hear it. You know. So right now, man, if you're you're struggling with something, give it to the Lord right now. I'm just gonna give you a moment. Thank you, Lord, for being a God of second, third, fourth million chances. Thank you for hearing these prayers in this room. God, help us to live for you from this day forward. Lord, we don't want to look down the road in two weeks and say, well, I want to live for you in two weeks. No, Lord, help us to just look in the day that's in front of us. Today, I want to live for you. This is the day that you made, oh, Lord. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in this day. I'm not going to look forward to next day or the next day or the next day. I'm just going to, I need your help to make it through this day, following you with relationship and love and being concerned with what you think in my life, being concerned with what I do in my life, being concerned with how I handle this vessel. 
because it's no longer my vessel, it's yours. So Lord, show me, show us how to handle these vessels that you've given to us and entrusted to us. For one day we will hand them back to you. Lord, we want to make you proud. Help us to live our life for you. Lord, I know that if anybody has been discouraged in here thinking, man, I'm not saved. Well, turn your heart. Turn your heart to the Lord. Turn your heart to the Lord. Give your, give your life to him. Surrender your life. It's an act of humility. It's an act of sacrifice. It's an act of surrender. Surrender your life to him. Ask him then from this point forward, what do you want to do in my life? Lord, I know that a prayer like that is a very, very interesting prayer because from this day forward, days are going to be a whole lot different when we ask you first, what would you have me to do today, Lord? What would you have me to do in this moment? Lord, I lift up my brothers and sisters to you. God, I pray that I not only see these in a year from now, but I see others. Maybe that have come home. Maybe that are here brand new. But Lord, help me not to see anyone suffer another spiritual casualty in this church. Help us to do those inspections on our life, not on a year-by-year basis, but Lord, even on a day-by-day maybe week by week, month by month, but may they not be so far in between that we lose sight of inspecting our own lives and examining ourselves to make sure that we're in the faith. Lord, help us to walk in you from this day forward. I love these sheep. They're yours. I'm just one of them. I love my brothers and sisters and I want to see them victorious in you, Lord. I want to see me victorious in you. I want to see us victorious in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, God bless.